Hi, I'm Dave and you're listening to Going Long. This is the second episode where I'll try and give you an insight into what it was like when bikes were all steel and Campagnolo. I'll also tell you how my first track bike almost put me in hospital. I'd love to remember what originally got me into riding bikes. It was probably the sense of freedom you get, or maybe it's how it makes you feel so alive as you whoosh along, covering surprising distances. It could even be that I loved doing that thing boys do, of taking stuff apart to find out how it works, then never being able to put it back together again. Whatever the reason, I was hooked. I remember one thing that gave me a huge buzz. To get to school... I would follow in the slipstream of my school bus down the dual carriageway. It must have been odd for those drivers seeing me, not long out of nappies, travelling at 40, 50, nudging 60 miles an hour behind that bus. I would have been riding my first drop bar bike, a metallic green steel Claude Butler with a five cog freewheel. This is probably when I first realised I was hooked on the thrill of danger. Oddly enough, I often find myself drawn into situations where I put myself in harm's way. I have one story of staring down the barrel of a live gun in Holland and another of being in a cafe in Bournemouth when somebody drove by and unloaded an automatic through the window. Maybe I'll post those stories one day. Anyhow, I found myself as a member of the local cycling club going on Sunday club rides and frequenting the local bike shops and generally getting involved in the local cycling scene. I'd save up my pocket money and the pay from my paper round to spend on all the shiny bits I used to lust after. I guess I was, and still am, an addictive personality. I think it was on Tuesdays or possibly Thursday evenings when I left school early. I'd saddle up and ride the 50 or 60 mile round journey from my house through the New Forest to a Southampton bike shop to look at all the expensive bike stuff they had on display. If I had the cash, I'd buy something and cycle back home with it. On reflection, my Southampton jaunts were probably Thursday because I used to train and race at Winton Outdoor Track on Tuesday evening. I could probably check this with Pat, who used to ride with me back then, and stayed local to the area. Sunday club rides were always fun. Often a 100 miles or more, we'd head out in any direction from the coast. It could be Dorchester Way, up to Salisbury, taking in Lymington or Lyndhurst. These rides were always led by Ken, who held a steady pace on the front all the way, unless, of course, we sprinted for town signs or found any other excuse to whiz off. My mum would make a packed lunch for me that I'd sling on my back in a musette for the pub stop that we would stop at. Juniors, like myself, were always made to stay outside, while the seniors went in and brought us out half a shandy to go with our cheese and ham sandwiches. Those final miles back to the ride start were never easy. Bear in mind, I was in my early teens regularly doing 100 miles on Sunday, so I was going to feel it. Then there was the bike maintenance. I was lucky to have a garage at the house and a father who was an aircraft engineer to refer to. The garage, conveniently, had wooden beams. So I would sling an inner tube or rope over one of the beams just behind the door, make a loop and hook my bike up on the nose of the saddle. That was my makeshift bike stand. 
Those bike bits were incredibly expensive, and it was up to us, the cyclists, to maintain everything if we expected it to last. I was covering some serious miles and causing some significant wear every week. I think nothing of completely stripping my bike down to parts after every ride. It all came off. Headset, bottom bracket, front and rear axles, brakes, even the down tube shifters. Remember them? The only thing I probably left on was the saddle. Even then, I'd fiddle with its position, as I knew that's what Eddie Merckx did. All the bearings were cup and cone. Each part, down to individual ball bearings, would get meticulously cleaned in paraffin, dried and reassembled. I could strip, clean and put back together a bike in under four hours. Afterwards, it would gleam and run like a Swiss watch. In the winter, when it was too wet to go outdoor track training, we used to do weight training somewhere on the way to Hengisbury Head. There must have been a youth hut or a community centre with a room where the club would meet and break out the barbell. We would warm up on some static rollers. I got really good at balancing on them. If you were in a cycling club back then, you were expected to do regular weekly 10-mile time trials, train at the track and know how to ride the rollers, all as a rite of passage. I probably enjoyed track training the most. It was something about the pristine surface, those tubular tyres pumped up to 160 psi, as hard as a strip of iron. The sheer smoothness of the whole thing seemed to appeal to the perfectionist in me. We were even allowed to progress to motor pacing. The speeds we reached matched the speeds I got whilst drafting that school bus. With all this training, my thighs became so huge I couldn't find any trousers to fit. It was inevitable that I needed to get myself a track bike. It wasn't long after setting out on my quest to find the perfect one that I discovered my dream machine in the pages of Cycling Weekly. I fell head over heels in love and desperately wanted an artisan bespoke Geoffrey Butler made out of Reynolds 531 double-butted race light tubing. It was the thing at the time. Back then carbon fibre was only just being experimented with. I would have chosen Columbus tubing, but, uh, you know, hey. <laughs> it was my father who drove me to the WF Holdsworth bike shop just outside of Putney to get my dream bike. There's still a bike shop there with a different name. I'd saved hard, and no doubt my parents, as some parents do, were helping cover the cost. Geoffrey was green. He was beautiful. He fitted like a glove. He was so twitchy that he'd have thrown me over the bars without shedding a single tear. The toe overlap was well more than six inches, and it was dripping with Campagnolo Pista gear. The chain set, the bottom bracket, the hubs, the headset, all of it Campag. I think it had Sinelli sprint bars, Weinman aluminium tubular rims, and Vittoria tubs. All the top-end stuff that you would have seen the world's best trackies riding at the time. An angry, green racing machine. If you tapped it with your fingernail, it would sing like a tuning fork. It was that keen to escape the starting blocks. I remember getting it home and putting it upside down in the music room where there was an upright piano. 
I sat there just spinning the cranks with my finger to marvel at the soft tick, tick, tick of the eighth-inch chain as it ran around the chainring and cog when I noticed blood pumping from the end of my finger. Geoffrey had amputated the tip of my first finger with surgical precision right down to the bone. That was the first time he put me in hospital. I was horrified, screaming with terror whilst painting the scene of a horror movie on the wall in blood. When I eventually calmed down, I sat there feeling very sorry for myself. I felt so stupid. My finger had caught between the chain and the chainring as I was spinning it. Precision-engineered moving metallic parts have a sharpness to marvel at. I really expected to be maimed for life. However, to my relief and eternal gratitude, my finger magically healed itself in a few days, maybe five or six. Such was the healing power of this 14-year-old that no mark or scar was left. All gone. Sadly, when I gave up riding and answered the call of a musician's life, I ended up having to sell my first love to my mate, Pat. I got a fraction of what Graham cost me. In a bizarre twist, many years later, after most steel bikes would have long been buried in landfill, I met up with Pat again by accident to discover he still has that track bike today. He'd stripped it of his handsome green paint and chrome-plated it, which may be the primary reason it survived. I suspect Pat still loves that thing as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe if you fancy hearing more. In the meantime, happy riding.